0: Good afternoon. My name is Bede Haynes and we are here on the New Books Network. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which I live and pay my respects to elders past, present and future. That's something which we do here in Australia. Today, I'm with Louise M. Pryke and I'm discussing her book Turtle from Reaction Books. It's part of Reaction Books Animal Series. Louise is an honorary associate lecturer at the University of Sydney where she gained a PhD in ancient history. She is the author of a number of books, including Scorpion from Reaction Books and a book on Gilgamesh from 2019. The back of today's book, Turtle, says, The turtle is an ancient creature once sharing the earth with dinosaurs for more than a 100 million years. Turtles have played a crucial role in maintaining healthy terrestrial and marine ecosystems. While it may not set records for land speed, the turtle is an exceptional distance swimmer and deep diver, and some are gifted with astounding longevity. In human thought, the animal's ties to creativity, wisdom and warfare stretch back to the world's earliest written records. In Turtle, Louise celebrates the slow and unassuming manner of this doughty creature which provides a living model of endurance and efficiency in the increasingly fast-paced world of the 21st century, it has never been more important to consider the natural and cultural history of this remarkable animal. Now Louise, I'd like to ask you to begin to tell us something about what you do and how you came to be drawn to write a book about turtles.
1: Okay. Well, uh, my, uh, I'm an ancient historian, and I focus on the myths and epics of the ancient world. And there's a lot of animal actors in these ancient myths and epics. And I think it's a really interesting way of connecting with uh, different civilizations and different cultures to consider how they view their animals and what kind of roles we see animals playing in myths and legends. And so I guess that's kind of led me towards turtles, my previous book was on scorpions, and I was really fascinated with how the scorpion's sting has dominated its modern image. And with the turtle, I feel like you've got a little bit of the same qualities. Uh, whereas the scorpion is naturally armed with its sting, uh, the turtle is naturally shielded with its shell. And so it's got that kind of warrior quality, which we see in its myths all the way from prehistory to pop culture.
0: Thank you. Now I'm going to begin with a few scientific questions. First of all, turtles are commonly considered to be reptiles, but the book itself throws a little bit of a, a little bit of nuance into what a reptile user is or isn't and whether a turtle ought to be a reptile or not or, or should not be a reptile. Can you explain to us what a turtle actually is? <laughs>
1: Okay, so this is, a, this is an excellent question and it's one of those questions which is very much open to debate. So depending on who you ask, you'll probably get a different answer. Uh, firstly, a turtle, what a turtle is kind of depends on where you are when you're asking the question. So if you're in the US, they tend to refer to all sort of uh, quadrupeds with um, a shell as being turtles. Whereas in Australia, we tend to make a distinction between the turtle, the tortoise and the terrapin. We tend to consider turtles as being uh, things that have flippers and swim in the ocean or the rivers, and we consider tortoises to be land-moving turtles, and uh, terrapins are a little bit of both.
0: I'd like you to comment next on what may be the main feature of the turtle is its shell. One thing I learned from reading this book is that the shell is actually a living part of the animal. It's not simply some lifeless shelter that the turtle just happens to live in like a cave. Instead, it has blood circulating through it and it has nerves. Can you tell us a little bit about the role of the turtle, the role of the turtle shell?
1: Yes, so I think this is quite amazing. So, the turtle shell has really dominated its image, but it's amazing how, uh, at least in modern popular culture, we seem to have the shell all wrong. Uh, if you ever watch cartoons with turtle characters, uh, you'll notice that there's often this idea that a turtle is somehow uh, distinct from its shell and can kind of pop its shell off and wander off and then come back a little bit like a um, disposable home or so. Uh, but this is definitely not the case for the turtle shell. So. The shell is definitely a living part of the turtle. Uh, they're connected and can't be separated. And it's got blood and nervous supply. And the turtle shell will actually uh, grow and change throughout the turtle's life. And one of the amazing things, uh, I mean, there's so many amazing things about turtle shells. Uh, so the top part of the turtle's shell is um, the carapace, and then the underneath part is the plastron, and then they're joined together. And What's amazing about the uh, the top shell of the turtle is that it's got this um, mineral store in it and the turtle is actually able to draw on those minerals when it needs to, say, lower the pH in its blood. So if it's underneath the water for a really long time, some turtles have been shown to be able to stay underwater without air for 170 days. Please don't try this at home with your turtles. Um, but... Um, But because they can uh, lower the pH of their blood by drawing on this mineral deposit that they have in their shells. Similarly, lady turtles are able to draw on the mineral deposits um, in their shells of, say, calcium to create uh, shells for their eggs when they're making babies. So it really is quite remarkable. And I think one of the qualities we don't fully acknowledge in the turtle, as well as the fact that it's I mean, there's other armoured animals, like the armadillo, for example, but that's armoured on the top and is soft underneath. Whereas the turtle, people have described it as like being encased in a suit of armour. And if you think about the remarkable things that turtles can do with setting you know records for deep diving and distance swimming, all the things they can do while they're encased in this suit of armour, I think they're quite remarkable.
0: Thank you. One, Another amazing turtle fact, which... I learned, and I'd heard of this as a child, so I was quite happy to actually see that apparently it did happen, is that turtles are known for living for long periods of time. And there's uh, stories recounted in the book of a turtle who died in 1966, apparently at the age of 188, and had been a gift from Captain Cook to the Tongan royal family. So we have here an animal that's lived through the British Regency, British colonialisation, the industrial revolution the french revolution the russian revolution both world wars even pacific nuclear island testing in the 1950s now that that to me is amazing how how as a historian can you actually do you contemplate the the concept of an animal just living for that long
1: Um, Yes, it is quite a mind-boggling expanse of time. I think the longest-lived turtle uh, that's currently still alive is named Jonathan, and I think he's now 187, which is quite amazing. And the thing about turtles is not only do they um, live for a really long time, some species, not all of them obviously live quite so long, uh, but also that they're so ancient. I mean, they once shared the earth with dinosaurs, Um, There's evidence, I think, from the Swiss mountains they found a a turtle shell that had been flattened after it got stood on by a dinosaur, um, which is remarkable. And the other thing about turtles being so ancient, the first sea turtle turns up about 100 million years ago, but proto-turtles turn up around 250 million years ago, which means that they were either just before the first known dinosaurs or around the same time. And if you look back way back in the past, then that's the time when turtles had teeth but no shells. So they're a little bit different. So I think there's actually an expression back when turtles had teeth. And it's actually true. So if you think way, way back, turtles did have teeth. And so, yes, it's just so much time. And for the turtle, I kind of wonder if it's because they're so clever with doing everything so slowly. You know, is there something for us to learn from the turtle? Because their metabolic processes are slow. They're not in a hurry. It's good for their cardiovascular health. (laughs) So, yes, I just wonder if maybe that's the
0: key. Thank you. And while we're on the long-lived turtle subject, one thing I would like your view on is the image I have is Captain Cook, the famous British colonist and explorer, whatever you might like to call him, navigator, gives a turtle to a person who is the king of an island in the Pacific where I imagine turtles must have been abundant. Would this be like someone giving me a carton of soft drink and saying, here you go, this must be a great treasure for you living in Sydney in the year 2020?
1: (laughs) That's quite hilarious, and I had never considered it that way before, but I think I will always consider it this way in the future. Um, And I suppose so, although the fact that the Tongan family, like royal family, obviously took such great care of this turtle suggests that they really valued... The gift, whether it was because it came from uh, someone that they considered to be in some way distinguished or whether it was, I don't, as you say, was it because it was a remarkable gift in itself? I'm not sure. But, yes, I think that there, I feel like that's an area I should have looked at more in the book, this idea of turtle diplomacy, giving people (laughs) turtles as presents.
0: Now, I'll focus on a couple of myths. One thing the book captures well is it gives all these examples of different ways in which culture and mythology have dealt with turtles over time. So a few examples I looked at were they were considered omens in Mesopotamia. They were wise beings in China. they In Egypt, they were some sort of opposition to the sun god. They were river imps in Japan. In the Greek stories, there's monsters throwing travelers off cliffs to be eaten by turtles. And I want to know, do you think, on all these topics, I'd like you to comment on, on that. And is there a particular reason? One thing I noticed was the turtle as a character in these stories isn't as stable as a lion or something like that. So if a lion's in the story, you might think, well, we know the lion character already. It's the strong, proud, and wise animal. But the turtle seems to be able to take on a lot of different types of identities. Why would you, if you agree, why do you think that is?
1: Yeah, that's a really great point. So... I think that if you look at all the different representations of a turtle uh, across so many different cultures over thousands of years, one of the things that seems to stay relatively stable amongst all this change that you do note uh, is that the turtle is presented as being a powerful creature. And so I think often in the modern day we think of turtle power as something that is held by the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Um, but this has quite a long history. And turtles are also generally Another thing that I find in common, generally, turtles are presented positively. They are usually taking on a kind of heroic role. They are um, carrying the world on their shoulders or they are um, warriors for gods or um, often they're connected to time and to wisdom. There's this uh, wonderful uh, idea in Native American mythology of uh, 13 moons on the turtle's back, where you see uh, 13 different scoots, uh, which are like the little demarcations on the shell uh, relating to a different moon every month of the year. So turtles often attach to time. And I think that's as we were talking about longevity and their sort of antiquity themselves, but also to power. And so most cultures view that power positively and you can see them being sort of harnessed as forces for good. But then as you know, Egypt seems to be a little bit the exception to the rule here. Uh, it's one of the cultures where turtles are quite sinister. And I think that this comes from, I mean, it's just a theory. You could really take it any way that you wanted to. But one reason I have heard is the idea that turtles in ancient Egypt uh, are sort of hidden. They sort of, I think we're talking here about river turtles that are submerged beneath the surface. Uh, they're in the dark. Whereas uh, Egypt is very much focused on solar theology with Ra, the sun god, making the trip through the sky and then having to battle the forces of darkness at night. And so living in the dark so much, the turtle in ancient Egypt is known as the mysterious one. And I think the fact it hides itself away under the water makes it seem a little bit shady to the Egyptians. They don't quite trust it. That being said, even though they don't quite trust it and they do see it as in opposition to the sun god Ra, they still are able to use that power that the turtle has uh, in a positive way. So we see uh, turtles appearing on these ancient Egyptian, uh, what we call magic wands, which are like a kind of a long wooden uh, or metal sort of stick that was held in the hand of a magician, uh, the left hand, while they were doing sort of magic spells. And uh, we see little uh, inscriptions of turtles on them. And I think it's because that power is able to repel forces of evil in the Egyptian uh, cosmological worldview.
0: Thank you. There's one other cultural story I think that would be worth commenting on because it brings the turtle up into modern times. And it, it deals with Christianity in Mexico and in the southern states of America. And it's told in your book that during Lent, when Christians traditionally on some days don't eat meat. Apparently, turtles are not classified as meat. They're, they're an exception because they're classified as seafood, and for some reason, seafood isn't classified as meat. And there appear to have been some movements recently to try and have this changed by the leadership within those churches. But apparently, it looks to me as though it's been a struggle to actually have that carried through. Can you explain um, a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so this is a really tricky issue Uh, and it seems to come all the way back to the Hebrew Bible uh, where strangely, even though we have turtles all over Mesopotamia and we have turtles in Egypt, all those surrounding ancient Near Eastern um, cultures, they turn up in myths, they turn up in literature, but in the Hebrew Bible, uh, no turtles. And I thought this was quite strange when I started to write the book, the fact that they turn up so prominently everywhere, but in the Hebrew Bible. And I talked to a bunch of people that I know that are biblical scholars. And firstly, I found a very strange correlation in that several biblical scholars seem to have turtles as pets, um, which I wasn't expecting. So it's clearly not that you can't like the Bible and turtles. Um, But why they didn't turn up in the Hebrew Bible, I found it hard to discover because seemingly they were in ancient Israel. We have archaeological evidence of uh, sort of prehistoric shamans being buried with sort of 50 thirst sp- by uh, the thir- can I say that spur thied There you go. Um, tortoises. So these tortoises seem to have been like a, a status symbol in prehistoric Israel, but then not at all in the Hebrew Bible. The exception, possibly, is in the book of Leviticus where they start talking about clean and unclean things for people to eat. Now, if you really ever want to have a long look at something that is uh, difficult to resolve, it's defining what is and isn't included in those lists because the Hebrew is debated exactly what animals are being depicted. It's very complicated to know exactly what Hebrew words stand for which animal. And so it's possible that turtles are included. In these lists and I think that's where the prohibition on eating them comes from uh, but then in the modern day sort of putting them in this idea that they're not meat but They can be used at times when you're not allowed to eat meat because they're sort of a meat substitute. That has been very bad for turtles because it is, um, they are, you know, so very endangered. If you look at turtles, they are one of the most endangered groups of animals in the world. Uh, And so it's quite serious to see them classified in this way. And also, I should say, it's also quite dangerous to eat turtles. There's many, many reasons why eating turtles is a bad thing. A lot of them are environmental and for the benefit of the turtle not to eat them. But a lot of them are also for the benefit of the people that are eating them. Uh, Because, you know, we see uh, turtle sales uh, being banned uh, from being eaten uh, in the US around 1970s well, not being eaten, that was because salmonellosis, which you can get from handling turtles, became an issue. But we see that turtles that are are sea turtles can lead to, uh, there's a kind of uh, poisoning that has no uh, cure and is fatal. Uh, And also turtles, as we were saying before, they've got really um, long lives, which means they can get quite high levels of mercury in their system, so if you're eating sea turtles, it's quite likely that you are going to be having more mercury than is healthy.
0: Thank you. The book then has a focus on animal welfare and the environment. It's recalled that in about the 1500s, after there was European contact with the Americas, turtles were hunted for meat and eggs, and in the 1600s, laws were actually passed protecting the animals around Bermuda and the Cayman Islands, and then over the years in other places animals were used in soup, meat, jewellery and ornaments. When these laws were first made, do you understand the motivation for them? For example, is it to preserve an industry as opposed to actually caring for the welfare of the animals?
1: That's a really great question. Um, Firstly, I think it's really interesting to note that some of the laws that were enacted to protect turtles, uh, say in Bermuda in 1620 or in Jamaica in 1711, these are some of the world's earliest pieces of conservation uh, legislation, uh, which is really exciting. So we see turtles right at the beginning of this kind of environmental movement. Uh, and then I know that the uh, both in both cases in Bermuda and Jamaica, the uh, change to the law was inspired by dramatic declines in turtle numbers. And I think it's a little bit of both in terms of being concerned for the natural environment, being concerned for uh, the animals. Because if we see a lot of, um, say, if we compare to Polynesian cultures, uh, turtles have such an important cultural role to play in a lot of these co- countries which are close to the water. Uh, you know, like even in Australia, we see that turtles are totem animals for a lot of First Nations people. uh, As they are in Hawaii, we have the turtles as the honu, which can be kind of like a family guardian. So I would definitely say there's an awareness of the innate value of the turtle, but also in uh, sort of uh, fishing communities and uh, communities where they sort of rely on turtle trade, which was a really important thing at the time, then I think uh, putting in uh, legislation to try and protect the turtles kind of serves um, a a multitude of purposes.
0: Thank you. There are a few environmental concerns, raised in other places in the book. I'll just run through a few of them and then I'll just ask if you could comment generally on these. You've already pointed out that most turtle species are threatened. I'd like to understand the role of a fishing bycatch in that and how much that contributes to this problem. And then there also seem to be the problems of tourism. So there's things like people sitting around watching turtles at night and there's artificial light distracting the hatchlings from going to the sea. Um, embarrassingly, Australia used to, you recall, it used to have pe- turtle riding experiences in Queensland. And there's still a massive exotic animal trade around the world worth $19 billion annually. And in fact, the Cayman Islands, the very islands a moment ago, these laws from the 1600s were passed. Those laws seem to have been so successful that they have to pass laws now because people are stealing the turtles that were spared in the 1600s, or their relatives at least.
1: Right, uh, so, right, there's a, lot, there's a lot going on with that question. <laughs> so, starting with the first bit, which was, uh, right, so bycatch. Okay, so if we think about bycatch, that does have a really significant impact on turtle numbers. Uh, I would also say that one of the most uh, threatening things from, uh, from commercial fishing to turtles is the idea of uh, ghost fishing. So this idea where you have discarded lines and discarded nets, uh, they're created to last because, you know, people want to have gear that they can rely on and so they just don't break down and people tend to throw them away. In some cultures there's this idea that, you know, the river will clean them away Uh, but unfortunately that's a misconception and they just continue floating and because they're created to catch sea creatures they're incredibly efficient at capturing turtles and fish and dolphins and other things and uh, strangling them. So uh, this is, this is a very serious issue and some companies are starting to market biodegradable uh, lines and nets. And I think that that's going to be super important in terms of trying to end the scourge of the ghost fishing. Um, in terms of, uh, Tourism, so ecotourism is kind of a double-edged sword. Uh, on one hand, it's so important that people are aware of what remarkable creatures turtles are, and ecotourism can play a really big role in both raising awareness and also providing incomes for uh, communities that uh, perhaps would otherwise have to rely on, say, uh, selling turtles uh, or their shells or uh, similar kind of things. So it gives the turtle a role, a renewed role in societies which may have once uh, traded turtles in a different way. So on one hand, it can be a wonderful tool of education and uh, sustainable um, trade. But on another, it doesn't have a really great uh, (laughs) background, as you say. Like in Australia, up on, say, Heron Island, uh, back in sort of the 20s and 30s, there was this sport, I say that in inverted commas, sport of turtle riding, where what you would have would be, you would have turtles that would come up to lay their eggs on the beach. They lay their eggs lie there and be exhausted for a little while, and in that time a tourist would leap on their back and sit on them as they tried to make their way way back to the sea. Now, happily, by the time they got into the sea, usually they were able to kind of submerge deep dive and get away, but you can just imagine how these turtles must have been (laughs) sort of thinking this is not what I need right now, I've just given birth to 50 eggs. Um, But on the other hand, turtle riding seemed to just disappear by itself. Uh, The other thing that was happening around a sort of slightly earlier time was the canneries that were up in that sort of northern Queensland area, which had such dramatic impact on, say, green turtle numbers uh, that they actually had to bring in legislation pretty quickly to close those canneries because they had a much more destructive uh, side. I think the turtle riding was more just an annoyance with silly tourists, whereas uh, the canneries was extremely destructive on the habitat. And the problem with... uh, things like commercial um, farming of turtles, which still occurs throughout the world even though they are so endangered, is that it tends to focus on particular species of turtle. Uh, So the farming uh, tends to sort of really overproduce large numbers of certain types of turtle and that really disrupts the biological balance uh, in nature. And then as well as that, we see that people will also sort of circumnavigate the farming and capture turtles from the wild and also their eggs, uh, which is a really big issue. And uh, this is uh, really, really damaging and it's leads to, as you were saying, I mean this uh, wildlife trafficking is a multi-billion dollar industry and the kinds of people that are involved in this multi-billion dollar industry, they're often... Uh, not just involved in wildlife trafficking, trafficking, but also drug trafficking, human trafficking, uh, weapons dealing. So um, this creates, this makes. Protecting turtles, incredibly dangerous for the incredibly brave people that go out there and try to study turtles, the volunteers who try to protect them and their eggs. Uh, It's incredibly risky because you're the kind of people that these uh, volunteers are up against are usually people who are involved with, say, drug cartels. And so, yes, it's it's very risky and um, unfortunately has led to uh, people dying uh, and being killed by the um, turtle poachers.
0: Now, a lighter subject, turtles in modern culture. The book has umpteen references to how turtles have been depicted over the years, from cereal to teaching children how to react to bomb strikes in the nuclear age to the Muppets and the Swedish chef to, of course, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, who I always thought were really more just like people dressed up like turtles. I didn't really capture too much of the turtle Maybe the original cartoon did. In any case, I would like you to comment on what you, some of your favourites and why you think the turtle itself is so attractive to commercial interests.
1: Right. So I think the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles are definitely the um, most famous of all turtles. And what I found fascinating when I was writing this book was how influential the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles have been not just on making turtles really, really popular, but also on the field of herpetology and the study of turtles. Uh, I talked to a lot of conservationists and a lot of herpetologists in writing the book and when I ask people what got you interested in turtles, a lot of them said that they loved the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cartoon as children. And so I think it's really important to be aware that when we're looking at popular culture, it can have a huge influence on all parts of our lives, including, you know, our scientific understanding of the world, uh, if a little bit indirectly. So I love the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I think that they're great. As you say, uh They are a little bit like teenagers and a little bit less like turtles, Um, but some of the qualities that they use, for example, we see like in ancient Egypt this idea of turtles um, being mysterious and being hidden, and so I feel like that kind of helps them to be seen as ninjas in a way because there is a lot of mystery about the turtle. There's a lot about the turtle that's elusive. And then, of course, we see the shell which we have seen uh, since, you know, ancient Sumerian myth, we see turtle warriors. And so it draws on some really ancient archetypes of this turtle warrior, uh, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. Also, I think what's fun about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is they kind of cast against type in a way. In the modern day, we kind of think of turtles as being very gentle and very placid. Uh, and so I feel like the, turtles, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles kind of uh, show the tough side of turtles, uh, which is kind of cool. Um I also really love the but the turtle uh duck and cover um which is from sort of the Cold War period where uh the US government needed to educate people Well, it needed to not so much educate people because in many ways it doesn't really educate people to do anything useful. If you haven't seen the cartoons there, you can probably find them on YouTube, but it's this idea that like the turtle, what you should do if there's a nuclear strike is duck and cover. And so they show the turtle that kind of retreats into his shell and he he hides, and so the idea is that you get under a table or something and then you're going to be safe from the nuclear strike. Now, I am not a nuclear physicist, but I suspect that this is untrue. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and so it's less about education and I think more about trying to deal with the anxiety of uh of the nuclear of the potential nuclear threat uh that people and particularly children were living with at the time and it's presented with this you know very likable turtle figure that I think the children can feel um some sort of sense of sympathy with it's very interesting topic about why they're so popular and particularly children seem to have a real empathy for turtles. I asked my turtle experts this question when I came up with nothing and they suggested that turtles, you know, they're kind of non-threatening in a way. And a couple of people suggested that they're the kind of animal that a child can keep up with. And also there's just something a little bit uh, intriguing about them, you know, the way that they have the shell and then there's so many parts to them. So I think they're quite complex as well. But it's interesting because turtles are generally just loved and they're not a cuddly animal, but they're very charismatic somehow. Um, I think there's something to the way that they take things at their own pace that I think we humans can kind of admire. Also, there's one other thing I want to say about that, is that turtles are often associated with elders and old age and um, I kind of wonder if that's sort of reassuring to people in that turtles can kind of play this sort of mature role um, with children. And they sort of feel like they don't have to try and uh, keep up with the turtle, but they can sort of take it at their own pace as well.
0: Well, that last comment you made there lends its way into my next question, which one thing about this book that I loved is when you read about the different ways in which the turtle is depicted across time, across science, across all the rest of it, your mind gets thinking, thinking about turtles. And one thing I wanted your comment on This might sound a bit crazy, but I'd still like your view, is do you think it's possible to read a film like The Empire Strikes Back and seeing Yoda as a turtle figure? Because he's wise and he's old and he's slow moving and his little house he lives in is shaped like a turtle shell. And he just seems, when I read this book, I thought, gosh, Yoda might actually be a turtle. I'd love to ask Louise that.
1: Wow. Okay. So now I'm pretty much devastated that I didn't put that in the book. (laughs) Um, Because, yeah, Yoda does have incredibly turtle-like qualities and, I mean, even his voice has a turtle-like quality Um, and I think that the way that he gives out this kind of timeless wisdom is very turtle-like and he sort of lives outside of the usual conceptions of time and I think that we see that in a lot of turtle characters in that they have this sort of timeless quality and, of course, he lives in that swamp I can't remember the name of that planet that he's on, but he's living in the swamp and he's eating God knows what, but it looks like something that a turtle would eat. I'm sure I saw a worm in there somewhere. Um, So yes, no, I think Yoda has many turtle-like qualities, which might explain why we accept him so readily in the role of someone who is uh, giving out wisdom, because this idea of animals feeling different cultural sort of uh, roles, symbolic roles, means that we can kind of really, like as you were saying before, like if we look at someone who's a bit like a lion, then you can immediately think, oh, they're brave. Whereas if you look at a turtle-like character, then you're going to think, oh, yes, I can accept them as wise. They have credibility with me in terms of their wisdom.
0: Hmm. Thank you. Another great part of this book are all of the photographs and pictures and paintings in it. I'd like you to comment on how you selected those and There's two things, aspects about that which I loved. One is some of the photos of the turtles swimming through the water with just the blue background, just to look at them, has this calming, to me at least, this calming and mesmerising effect. And the other picture that I would like you to comment on is John William Godwoods, I probably said that incorrectly, painting called The Quiet Pest. It's a neoclassical painting from 1906. And one thing I'd like you to, to... comment on is the why you chose that picture and the idea that within the picture itself and i encourage people to have a look at it is the, the quiet pet you would think means the turtle but if you look at the picture it's a sleeping lady on a dead lion skin and the cyclamen or an african violet just completely still in the daytime so the only thing that is actually moving is this small turtle so it just seems to be almost a, a an ironic statement calling it the quiet pet but i'd like i'd love to for you to talk to us about that painting and about the photographs you put in this book.
1: Right. Well, firstly, thank you. I'm so glad that you enjoyed the images of the turtles that were swimming in the water because the thing about my book Turtle is, okay, so it's got some sneaky tortoises in it, but it's largely about sea turtles. Uh, and the reason for this is that the series already has a tortoise book. And so I tried to focus more on the sea turtles. And so when I was thinking about sea turtles and how important they are to a lot of um, sort of coastal communities and that kind of thing. I really wanted people who are reading turtle to feel a little bit like they're on a tropical holiday (laughs) and that they are slowing down to the pace of the turtle and looking at all the beautiful or aquamarine water as it goes past. So I'm glad that some of that has come off in the images. Also, some of the pictures I chose were because the turtles, turtles are It's amazing because they're quite stoic things. For many years, people thought that turtles didn't make any noise. Um, Plutarch in ancient Greece actually thinks that they're like the ideal wife because they're silent. Um, But Plutarch is wrong and turtles actually do make a lot of, (laughs) in many ways, but also he's wrong about turtles being silent. Um, They're finding that turtles actually uh, make noises that are very hard for us to hear, but they're able to say turtles can communicate with their young in some cases. Um so what was my point about this was that they're quite stoic but at the same time we see them as being uh, – showing up in all kinds of cultures where they've got um, this role as a pet uh, which was one of the reasons I chose that but also – when they're quite stoic but at the same time they have quite expressive faces. I mean some of the turtles that you see they have looks on their faces and it's very hard not to anthropomorphize them because they just really look like they're smiling or they're cranky. Anyway have a look at have a look at the pictures and and see what you make of that. Um, In terms of the quiet pet image that I chose I thought it was really interesting because the idea of the turtle as a pet is so controversial in the modern day. Uh, Turtles really shouldn't be kept as pets uh, because it can feel, um, it can flow into illegal wildlife trafficking, which nobody wants to be supporting. Uh, But at the same time, I'm sure that a lot of people are very bonded with their turtle pets and it builds a greater appreciation of them. So, you know, I don't want to... diminish anyone's affection for their pet, obviously. But the fact that turtle pets have been, you know, through the ages, I think Picasso was said to have had a turtle pet that kept him company in the studio. And the way that, as you say, this lady is kind of lying there and the lion skin uh, is obviously inert. Everything looks kind of faded, but the turtle is just kind of keeping on. And I think that that's something that's very consistent with the turtle, this idea that it's just going to it's the, very much the turtle on the hair idea, that the turtle may not be, you know, the slickest or the coolest or the fastest, but it's just going to keep turtling on at its own turtle pace. And I thought that that was quite remarkable that it was captured so well in the image. And this, as you say, is quite a, um, a subtle way that it's connected. One of the other things I wanted to say about the images with the art was that there are some amazing images of turtles in art, uh, such as in Matisse, Bathers with a Turtle. And some of these artworks have quite interesting histories. For example, Bathers with a Turtle was confiscated by the Nazis around 1936 and was sold in their um, auction for um, what they considered to be degenerate art. And it had to be, it was uh, saved by a descendant of, I think, the newsman, uh, Pulitzer, who I think gave it to the museum in St. Louis. Also another famous uh, depiction of turtles in, uh, in art, if, you know, sort of more of a uh, children's books, is obviously Yertle the Turtle. Um, and what I found really interesting about Dr. Seuss's Yertle the Turtle was that it's actually based on, it's actually a satire on fascism. And when he was designing Yertle, who is obviously this um, turtle with, you know, he wants to take over the world, Apparently, in the original drawings, he had a little Adolf Hitler-style moustache because um, Dr. Seuss was trying to make a comment about uh, current world events. So, hmm.
0: Very interesting. One, One of the last questions for today is I actually kept a list of words that I came across in this book that seemed to be very particular to turtles but were very unfamiliar to me. And I'd ask if you'd be kind enough, Louise. I'll give you a list. There's only six of them. If you could read them out because I will get them now I will pronounce them incorrectly without doubt. I would love it if you could do it and just comment briefly on what these words mean because I think they're amazing little features of turtles.
1: Okay, look, I'll give it a crack. Um, So, okay, so they're ectotherms, uh, which means that they uh, are able to have their body temperature regulated by things around them, which is really actually interesting because scientifically it's quite complex because we see some types of turtles, uh, some types of sea turtles are able to regulate their own body temperatures as well. And so there's a little bit of uh, complexity there. Then we've got senescence, which is this idea of – this incredible aging capacity that turtles have where they age slowly. And I asked a turtle expert about this who was so wonderfully helpful. And he thought that part of the reason that they age so slowly might be because a lot of the time they're inert. And so really they're not um, using up many of their resources. And so they're kind of holding a lot in the tank, which is quite impressive. Uh, Philopatric. Uh, is a word meaning uh, they're home loving it comes from the greek and uh, the idea of philopatric turtles is that uh, female turtles um, male turtles sea turtles don't tend to come to land but female sea turtles are known for returning to the same beach where they were hatched to lay their own eggs and they can just swim for you know hundreds of kilometers but they find their way home We don't know how they do it. We think it's got something to do with like using the geomagnetism of the earth as kind of an internal GPS or even by tracking the movements of the stars. There's so many different ways they could do it. We're not quite sure, but it's remarkable. Liminal. Okay. So a liminal creature is one that lives kind of betwixt and between. So it's not kind of one thing or the other. And we see that with turtles in so many ways because they can, uh, you know, they They're hatched on land but they live most of their lives in the water uh, and their bodies are kind of by turns hard with the shell but then they've got this very soft uh, inside. And so they're very much betwixt and between. So they're liminal creatures, turtles, and we see that a lot in their mythology. Uh, I should also add that liminal creatures in the ancient world are considered to be extremely powerful, which might possibly lend into that image a bit. Uh, Epibionts, I love this one. So Epibionts are little tiny uh living things that live on the shells of turtles and the reason i love this is because we see in myths um from uh, you know uh, first nation nations communities in north america to uh to ancient india we see this idea of the world turtle that carries the world on its back and science has proven that turtles really do carry little tiny worlds on their backs in this um in the epibionts or the epibiota that they carry and sometimes these can be uh helpful uh you know they can be little creatures that can kind of clean the turtle shells and other times they can be like little mollusks and so forth that can actually sort of cover the turtle's eyes and they can't see where they're going so it really depends on what kind of world they've got going how well this is going Uh, And then we've got Chelonia, uh, which is just like the name for, the family name
0: for our turtles. Well, thank you very much, Louise. Thanks for your time today. I'd love to ask you now what you are planning to do next. What are you working on now?
1: Well, thank you. I have enjoyed talking all things turtle. Uh, The next project that I'm working on at the moment is I'm writing a natural and cultural history of wind which is really interesting because wind is everywhere. So there's space wind, there's wind on earth, there's just wind everywhere uh, and it has always been. Uh, and so narrowing that down into a book is going to be very interesting. Uh, so far I'm finding there's a lot of connections between wind and magic and I think it's because they're both powerful but invisible. Uh, and there's also it's also interesting because the book is going to have, uh, like turtle, Lots of pictures and wind being largely invisible to the naked eye, I think that I have made myself an interesting little challenge with this book.
0: Great. Well, thank you for your time, Louise. And thank you, everyone, for listening to today's conversation on the book Turtle. The book is available. You can pick up a link to where you can acquire that book from in the show notes. I think it's published early 2021, but it is a delightful book worth a look, especially at the pictures and especially at all of the interesting stories. Thank you again, Louise.